are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. We are about a, a third of the way through Hebrews, and this middle third is very much going to argue that in many ways, your greatest need and my greatest need is for a high priest. And what this Sunday, what Resurrection Sunday represents in no uncertain terms, is that we have received that great high priest. Now, that might not be, right, that was no one's shouting moment. No one jumped out of your chair and said, praise God, that I have a high priest. And so we've got a little work to do to really understand what it means that our greatest need is for precisely what Hebrews says Jesus has become, for a high priest. And let me see if I can do this simply. Now, uh, it is Easter Sunday, and so uh, we, we try and do a lot on Easter Sunday. But I will say this, is that we will go into great depth into all this stuff about whoever this guy named Melchizedek is and what it means that Jesus is a high priest. And so come back. Um, that would be one of my primary goals for you uh, after Easter Sunday is to come back and to take that journey with us. But I'm going to try and set us up this morning. And it feels, even as I was setting this up, it felt like appropriate to, to be at this hinge point in this letter here on Easter Sunday. What we said about actually these, these first couple of verses here, the, the end of chapter 4, is that this, most commentators agree, most biblical scholars agree, is kind of a hinge in, in the letter. Think of it this way, is that almost all of our modern songs, especially pop songs, go, and songs that we sing in church, go verse, chorus, verse, Chorus. You might remember me saying this when we were introducing Hebrews. And Hebrews is, is much the same where it has these different emphases, right? And the whole point of that is that the verse is something unique building into the overall theme of a song. And then the chorus reiterates that theme. It reminds you this is about love. This is about worship of the Almighty God, well, whatever that song is. Well, this letter is similar in that every one of these thirds, think of them as verses, has its own emphasis, but it's around a certain theme. And so it returns to this chorus that's a reminder that has all of those verses 
packed into them. And so you, you have uh, actually this here. You, you have another one a little bit later on in Hebrews. That's a summary of everything that went before. And what we're told here is, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In many ways, that's the theme of this entire letter. That's everything that the author here is trying to get us to see. Because, as I said, our greatest need is precisely for this high priest. Here's, here's the biblical worldview. Here's what Christians believe, is that every single bit of pain and suffering, of loss, of grief of rebellion, of mess, of failure in your life is fundamentally because you are disconnected from what you need most. Namely, you and I are disconnected in our, in and of ourselves from God, from the source of life, from the one who gave us life and gave us purpose. See, God created human beings with a certain purpose. He made us in a certain way. He made us to flourish. And just like every creature in the world that only flourishes under certain conditions in a certain environment, so too were humans made to flourish. Right? A fish is put in water and given gills so that it can breathe. A fish out of water is going to flap around and die eventually. So too with human beings. The environment that we were meant to be in is in full relationship to God, in submission to Him, obeying Him, listening to the way that He tells us to live, living by His agenda, and then serving the world. That's, that's the, if the inhale is relationship with God, the exhale, the lungs that we were given, was that we would be a blessing to this world. Instead, each of us in turn, and you don't need to be a Bible scholar to see this all around you, instead chooses to run after a thousand different agendas to give our lives meaning and purpose. We believe that if we looked a certain way, if we had a certain level of success, if we had this or that thing, if we had enough financial security, if we had this or that relationship, whatever it is, we find an agenda to live by that we believe will actually be the means of our flourishing, the means of our, call it, salvation. And in so doing, we are like fish out of water flopping around for life where we were never meant to find it. And instead of being a blessing to the world, finding that in the exhale of selfless service to others, we, we find a kind of rejuvenation. Instead, we all are profoundly selfish and therefore make a mess of this world. And instead of breathing out what we were meant to breathe out, we keep these things in and find ourselves much like that fish out of water flopping around wondering why there's no spiritual breath in our lungs. And so it's that disconnectedness from how God created us that is the source of every single awful, hard, brutal thing in our lives, in this world, in the culture around us, even in this last year, 2020, everything that we have been to can be traced back to the fact that humanity is not living as we were meant to, namely in perfect relationship with God. Therefore, what we need is to be brought back into relationship with God. 
And this, friends, I'm here to tell you is the good news of Easter, is that through what Jesus did on Good Friday and then resurrecting to new life, that the most important thing to understand about that is it, it, it gives us back the fundamental thing that we all most need, which is reconnection with God. This is what it means that Jesus is our high priest. What, and again, whatever background you're coming from, you probably have some concept of what a priest does. What does a priest do? In various religions, including Christianity and in certain traditions of Christianity, a priest stands between humanity and God. That priest represents humanity to God, and so that priest might receive prayers and then bring them to God, but that priest also stands between God and humanity. That priest bears the authority of God, bears the words of God. Even what I'm doing right now is a kind of priestly function, speaking what I believe are the words of God to you on his behalf. This is what a priest is meant to do. And humanity has had priests all along, but we do not have one who fully reconnected us to God for the exact reason that Hebrews tells us here at the beginning of chapter 5. Listen to what this says. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. There's a basic definition of what a priest does. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Right? Goes before God because we ourselves can't go before God in our brokenness. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now this is primarily talking about he is able to represent uh, us to God precisely because the priest is one of our own. He's one like us. He's one of the crowd. He has weakness like us and therefore he is able to have empathy for the very things that keep us disconnected from God. And so he's able to be gentle. Right? This is a gentle image. This is, a, as we talked about, if you were with us for Good Friday, this is an empathetic. This is the priest coming alongside us. It's, it's one of our own. So much one of our own that because of this, verse 3, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only one called by God, just as Aaron was. Do you hear that? So no priest can say, hey, everybody, I'm a priest. And what it's saying is no priest can say that because the priest himself, herself, is just as lost as the people that we are meant to represent. We have the same need that you do, and so this is not something that can be self-appointed. No, this has to be called by God. Even just the fact that there were human priests was a gracious provision of God in light of our rebellion against him. And so the priest themselves needs to actually do the thing that we most need, which is have a sacrifice, have a substitute stand in for them so that they might find themselves acceptable before God. That, that's, that's this whole background that we'll get through in the next couple chapters of Hebrews, because what a, a priest did in the worldview that this book is written to, namely a Hebrew, a Jewish worldview, that's why it's called Hebrews, is that a priest would represent the people, would take the sin of the people, and then would take a sacrifice with them that stood in 
for the people, who would bear what was the people's to bear, who would, who would be the, who would take on the full penalty, namely death. Remember last week we said that where the scriptures ultimately leave us is naked and splayed out before God, fully seen in all of our brokenness. And, and that is what the word of God does. It pierces. That's why a sacrifice was necessary so that something was pierced by that word. And amazingly, again, a gracious thing that God would allow an animal to symbolically stand in for the people. And the priest would bring that, right? And you're saying, where is this going? Just track with me. The priest would bring that in on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. If you grew up in the Northeast, you probably got days off for this. You might have never known what that was for. Yom is the word day. Kippur is the word for atonement. Yom Kippur, one day a year, that priest would actually go into the literal presence of God with a sacrifice. And and legend has it that they would tie, we don't know if this was actually a thing, but it's kind of cool, works with the image, is that they would tie a rope around the chief priest's uh, ankle and he would go behind this huge curtain and he would bring the sacrifice in and and God would either consume the sacrifice or consume the priest. That's why they tied a rope. Because if the priest was consumed, they'd have to pull that priest out of there. But again and again, God would take that sacrifice, see it as acceptable. And then the, the chief priest would come out. Now he's representing God to people and the people would go absolutely crazy because him coming out, him not being consumed, and said the sacrifice being consumed was a great joy for the people. And it meant that the presence of God would remain among them. You didn't know you are going to get this level of biblical education on an Easter Sunday, but here we are. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk plenty about that in weeks to come. Just put a footnote on that. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Though he was a son, he did not get cosmic divine nepotism. He was not spared the full measure of what it is to be faithful in this world. Again, if you were with us on Good Friday, we said that this makes Jesus, amazingly, the perfectly, not just sympathetic one, not just able to say, wow, that looks really hard with what you're going through. No, it means that he got into the pit with us and felt the full weight of what it is to be human in this, in this broken world. He he felt the full weight of it, of what it is to be cosmically a fish out of water, if you will. He was tempted in every way. That word tempted there is this word that the New Testament is constantly using in two ways. Temptation, the way we think of it, a temptation to sin, but also tested and tried, gone through a trial. And it says that in every way that we are tested and tried and suffer, Jesus felt it. He knows what rejection is like. He knows what abandonment is like. He knows what it is to feel real pain. He knows what it is to feel real loss in this world. He knows what it is to stare evil in the face, to feel the full weight of it upon him. And so therefore, he is a, he is a perfectly empathetic yeah, a high priest might be able to deal gently with people and say, oh yeah, I kind of know what that is. No, Jesus was perfectly the one able to enter into your pain. And so if your image of God is some nice, uh, put together, cleaned up God, you are not dealing with the God of Christianity because the image of God that we are meant to have is the image of one bloodied on a cross, bearing the full weight of what it is to be human in this broken world. 
What it makes me think of, uh, one of the images it makes me think of is uh, Lord of the Rings. Sorry, but uh, this is just what preachers do. We like Lord of the Rings. Um, is uh, in, that, in that movie, you've probably seen the movies. Not many of you have probably read the books. But in the movies, if you remember, when Frodo gets the ring and then he starts being followed by Gollum, my precious, right, like that guy, and Samwise, his buddy, one of the dynamics that happens pretty quick in the movie is that Frodo, you can tell, has, has empathy for Gollum. Whereas Samwise does not. Samwise is like, we should, we should kill this guy. Why are we letting this guy stick around? Like, this is crazy. He's going to be our undoing. I don't understand. And what the books go into a little bit more detail of is actually what's going on there is Frodo has this empathy because he's feeling the power of the ring upon him. And he's saying, look, in some ways there but by the grace of God go I. That is, I know what it is to feel the weight. And so to simply reject this man at this point in the journey is, is to do a disservice to what I have fully felt, to, to the weight that he has borne that I now feel in a microcosmic way. What's interesting in the story is that as time goes on, and this happens in the movies, but again, it's more emphasized in the book, is that by the end of their journey, Samwise himself is suddenly feeling a kind of pity, a kind of empathy for Gollum, for my precious, that guy. Do you know why he's feeling that empathy? Because at various points along the trip, Samwise has actually had to put on the ring. He's actually had to, had to bear it. I think so often we think of ourselves as these Gollum-like figures that do not have a prayer in this world because we have this afar-off God who has no idea what it's like to sit in the darkness and brokenness that it is to be human. When actually we have one who has borne what we bear and actually borne it far more deeply because his forsakenness was a forsakenness from perfect relationship with his Father, from eternal relationship with his Father. And so his suffering is greater than ours, actually. I said this on Friday, and I've been thinking about it for, for the last 36 hours or whatever it's been. But it's an amazing thing to sit in the presence of someone who has suffered more than you. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. We have it kind of as a culture where we admire people who have, have seen the depth and darkness of human suffering and come out the other side of it. Think of... Uh, those who were enslaved in our history, those who, um, those who survived the Holocaust, for instance, or even just, just think uh, on more of, of a personal level, those in your life, maybe relatives, maybe friends that you know, who have gone through things that are just unimaginable to you, and somehow the words of those people have a weight to them because of what they've suffered. There's an ability for them to come alongside your pain and suffering because what they've suffered, who comes to mind for me is growing up, my, my dad for a, a while worked at a place called the Bowery Mission in New York City, which is uh, the largest homeless shelter. And one of the things that they had was a program for, uh, for men who were recovering from drug addiction. And one of the men there who had gone through the whole program and then actually was, was one of the workers of the program was a man named Vinny. And Vinny was in our house a lot in... Uh, Vinny actually ultimately died of AIDS that he had contracted uh, intravenously uh, 
when he himself was drug addicted. Here was a guy who had seen the worst of this world, who had been in the truest pit. And now here he would walk into our house, into our little family. I'm like eight or nine years old. And when he would speak into things in my life, when he would say, when he was the first one who ever introduced me to, to the phrase, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. When he would say that, though, it had a weight to an eight-year-old boy because of what I knew he had borne. And again, I wonder which place we think we're in with Jesus. Are we the one who has suffered more and are looking somehow for empathy from one who just doesn't know what it's like to be in our skin? Or do we understand that we are approaching one whose word should have a weight because of the depth of what he has suffered, which is cosmically more than even the worst? And look, I know you guys. I'm your pastor. I know what some of you have been through. And so I don't offer my perfect empathy to you. I offer his, though, confident that he is actually able to bear whatever it is that you have suffered through. This is your high priest. This is God. This is your creator who has become your high priest who can stand in front of you and perfectly empathize and say, I know exactly what it is to be in that pit where you are. And then go before God on your behalf. Again, like we said on Friday, if that's all he did, though, we would be left in that pain and suffering. So the good news of Easter Sunday, though, is that he doesn't just empathize with our pain. He is actually overcoming. Amen. It means that the worst that this world could possibly throw at him, violence and rejection, and being cast out, and beaten, and tortured, and ultimately killed, and laid in a grave, did not have the final word with this high priest. Because amazingly, the question that we should ask is, with that image of a priest who on our behalf takes sin in this sacrifice into the presence of God, and then comes out and we all cheer, the question about Jesus' high priestlyhood is, why didn't he come out? And we should say, praise God, he didn't come out. You see, he stays in that place. He remains in the perfect presence of God. One of our own, a human being now sits next to God, represents you to God in an ongoing, persistent, never-ending way. He carries your name, your name, not just us in generally. He is wide enough, he is expansive enough to carry your name and your name and your name and your suffering, and your pain, and your sin into that place. And the question that it begs is, not only why didn't he come out, but what did he go in with? Where was the sacrifice? The answer amazingly, and this is why if you're saying, what do animals have to do with human sin? You're asking the right question. That was all symbolic, because what was actually needed was one of our own, who themselves was perfect, who themselves could stand in for his brothers and sisters and say, God, I am what they all can't be, and yet I stand here as their representative. And so would you see them as mine? Would you see them as what I am? Because what Jesus brought in with himself was his very being. His sacrifice was not just his death on a cross. It was his entire life lived. It was his entire being that he goes into the presence of God and he says, would you consume me instead of them? And so God consumes him in death. But here's the amazing thing. Here's why he himself ultimately isn't consumed. is because that act 
was actually an act of, of righteousness. It was something that God saw as good unto itself. Yes, he became sin, but because he himself was sinless, if you can follow this, because he himself was sinless, that act of becoming sin itself was a righteous act. You see, God outdueled the enemy at his own game. And so Jesus is risen now. He's alive. He's gone through death. Come out the other side. Now he says, come with me. Now he says, I'll be your high priest. I'll stand for you. I'll be what you most desperately need because I've become what you can never possibly be on your own. And he reconnects us amazingly to God. Let's go back to the beginning of this passage because this is the so what of this passage. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Do you hear how that jumps out a little bit more now? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not an earthly temple, he's actually in the literal presence of God, what should we do? Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sinless sacrifice, the perfect one, now in the presence of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We've said throughout the book of Hebrews that the primary metaphor, the image that it uses for the life of faith is what? It's a journey through what? Anybody? Bueller? Wilderness. Thank you, whoever that was. It's a journey through the wilderness. Hebrews is honest about what the life of faith feels like. It doesn't feel like skipping through the tulips. It feels like the agonizing journey through arid places You see, the life of faith is a difficult one. Jesus made no false promises. He is risen, but we are not home yet. He is risen, but we do not yet behold Him face to face as we one day will. He is risen, but the work of us participating and experiencing that resurrection life is an ongoing project in every one of our lives. And so this life is a journey. And it's a difficult one. And there's pain involved. And there's perseverance through our own sin and rebellion. And here's the image that this is giving to us. Is that what Jesus has done, and I'm about to use an extended mountain climbing metaphor. You're welcome, Josh Walker, the only mountain climber I know. Is anyone else in here into mountain climbing? All right, so this is going to land beautifully. Um, I don't know anything about mountain climbing, uh, but uh, here's, here's what I think I know. is Here's the image that it's giving us. If we might change the image a little bit from a journey through wilderness to climbing a mountain, right? Another ag- agonizing journey is the image that we're meant to get here is that Jesus has already gone out ahead of us. And he's not only gone out ahead of us and climbed that mountain. He has set a firm foundation. He has set an anchor at the top of it and sent down a line to us. And we ourselves are now climbing, but we are climbing with the assistance that he has sent down to us. We are climbing in a safe and secure situation where Jesus, now he doesn't just stay at the mountain and says, come up, come up, keep trying. He comes alongside of us and is our guide along the way. 
Because it's a journey he knows. It's a journey he's taken. It's a journey that he's not just taken in your life. He's taken it in every believer's life before you. See, there's a legacy of faith that Hebrews wants us to believe in. It says, many others have gotten to the end with Jesus as their guide. So too will you. The one time that I actually did go mountain climbing, it was one of those walls inside or whatever. Uh, the one thing that I remember about it is standing on the wall and you're sort of stuck there. And then this, this guide who's with you says, put your hand there. And you're like, there? And you're like, but I'm going there. And they're like, no, put your hand there. And you're like, okay, there. And they're like, now put your foot where your hand just was. And you're like, okay. And none of it's intuitive, at least to a new climber. You're kind of like, why am I doing? But that person knows the way. And to the extent that we listened, to the extent that I would obey what that person was telling me, as strange as it was, suddenly I would find myself making progress, whereas before I'd just be hanging there. This is the image that it's giving us for Jesus as our high priest. It's saying he's perfectly able to empathize with the journey. He knows it, he's, he's succeeded at it, and he's with you along the way. Here's what's amazing about Jesus. Don't forget that the risen one bears the scars of his own journey of faithfulness. And so every time that we're on that mountain and we say, yeah, Jesus, but it's hard, and he says, I know. We say, yeah, Jesus, but my hands are bloody. He says, yes, so were mine. We say, yeah, Jesus, my side is killing me. He says, yeah, look at the wound in my own side. We say, yeah, I'm sweating and it feels like sweat to the point of of bleeding. It feels like my soul is being poured out. He said, I know what that is. And then he says, well, put your hand there. And you say, there? And he says, yeah, there. And he says, now now one more step. And suddenly what felt like this, we find ourselves going up in the journey. And he says, put another hand there. And you say, yeah, but I'm scared. And he says, yeah, so was I. And you say, yeah, but, but there's all this pain. What about them? What about them? He says, eyes on me, eyes on me. And he says, put your hand there. Because here's the amazing thing about a mountain. I don't know much, but I know this. Is that the view when you are climbing incites terror in you. You're told, don't look down. But what are you told precisely the moment you get up on the top of that mountain? Turn around. Look. Look at the view. And suddenly all of that terror gets swept up into this joyous moment where you realize it was worth it. It was worth it. I'm in pain. I have aches. My muscles hurt. I don't even know how I got here. The journey didn't feel like it was straight up ever. I just remember just putting one hand in front of the other and trying to listen to the voice of my guide. And then we turn around and we find that what all of that has been transformed into is the destination for which we are all bound if we will but obey that chief priest. He transforms all of it. None of it is wasted. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I I don't even compare. I don't even compare this light momentary affliction to the weight of glory that will be mine if I persevere, if I will suffer with him. You see, what you most need is a great high priest. And you have one because he's risen today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have gone before us. We thank you that you know the journey. We thank you that you are both chief priest and sacrifice somehow, some way. Jesus, I pray that anyone here separated from you would use these next few moments of reflection to do business with you. Or maybe it's been a long time since we've sat under this news and been invited to respond. Lord, I pray that we would take this opportunity to do that, that we wouldn't squander even you speaking right now to us. 
Lord, for those who have been on the journey for some time and are weary, I pray that they would hear your voice afresh and know that both the end is worth it and that you're so near. You're, you're as near as the very breath we breathe and you've got us, Lord. You've got us. That as much as it feels like we're climbing and pushing, that we are being pulled from the top all along. God, help us to feel that hope today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We end our time.